0: Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week we have Dr. Eric Gardner. He teaches at Saginaw Valley State University in the English department as it happens. Um, Eric is a distinguished scholar of 19th century African American literature. He received his B.A. at Illinois Wesleyan University and his Ph.D. at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Today, we'll be talking to him about his book, Jenny Carter, a Black Journalist of the Early West. I really enjoyed reading the book, um, and I admire the book very much, because Eric did something that um, any historian should admire, and that is he discovered something that really wasn't known, and that is uh, both the literary contributions of Jenny Carter and her identity. So, as I said, I really enjoyed talking to Eric, and I hope you enjoy listening to us. Here's the interview.
1: Hi, Eric. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing all right. I got a little bit of a cold, but I'll try not to be too squeaky okay, for you. Really, I'm yeah. really
0: sorry about that. <laughs> um, right. Today we have Eric Gardner with us, uh, and he has um, edited a new book on Jenny Carter uh, with the subtitle, A Black Journalist in the Early West. It's a fascinating book. Um, I've had a chance to read it, and um, my research assistant and I had a a really excellent discussion about it yesterday, so I'm really looking forward to talking about the book. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about Eric. Eric, why don't you fill us in a little bit on your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, and so on and so forth.
1: Well, I'm an Illinoisan by birth, um, and I think I was uh – one of always those those, uh, those those geeky kids that loved story uh, in all its forms. And so that took uh, certainly the form of, of reading voraciously all the way through, but it also took a form of uh, listening to stories that uh, family members told, and mm-hmm. I think also a, a sort of a, a really early deep interest in uh, uh, genealogy, which I, I know lots of academics sort of consider that a weird stepchild of history.
2: Oh, I
0: don't know. Uh, I, used to, but, I was going to uh... say, I, I just a, a little bit of a plug here. I... Um... I, back in the late 90s when the internet broke, I taught a genealogy class at, at, mm-hmm. actually at Harvard because they mm-hmm. wouldn't let me teach it in the history department. So I had to teach it in the mm. extension school. Oh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> it was indeed. one of my most popular classes. People loved it. <laughs>
1: well, because so it I'm about, I mean, allows, there. Yeah, it allows you to really think about uh, 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 people that are connected to you directly Absolutely. as being participants in you know, a broader world.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
1: and uh, I, I think that that, uh, you know, that sense of, of, of finding out people's stories um, and, and thinking about how stories work to convey information and to preserve memory uh, and to construct memory uh, uh, shaped a lot of uh, uh, um, my my work all the way through. I did my undergraduate at Illinois Wesleyan, which is a uh-huh. small liberal arts sure. school in, in, in Illinois. And uh um, you know, couldn't decide, and so I ended up uh, uh, taking a major in English, but then doing uh, two minors, which was sort of unheard of there: uh, a minor in history and a minor in American studies. Uh-huh. Um, because uh, uh, blissfully they were willing to, you know, let me indulge all of those passions and and and, and put them together.
2: That's what liberal,
1: uh, and uh, that's,
0: that's what liberal arts colleges are for. That's,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm you know major proponent of that. I so. went to
0: one too. I know you're talking about
1: yeah, yeah, and. Um, from, from 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 there, I uh, went and did I went to the uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and uh-huh. did my master's and doctorate degrees both there. Oh, really? Um, okay. And again, had the you know the the wonderful uh, chance to not only fall in with a group of literary scholars who were deeply, deeply interested in uh, thinking about literature as as not only happening in a historical moment, but as being an agent for historical change. Uh, Nina Bain was my uh, dissertation director, and mm-hmm. she's uh, a general editor of the, the Norton Anthologies of American Literature, and has done okay. a, a great deal of recovery work on uh, women writers of the 19th century. Okay. Um, and, and so uh, we, we worked together for, fairly closely. The other nice thing about Illinois was that uh, it was very much... Uh, um, if you know uh, uh, um the uh, 19th century uh, uh, uh writer Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh discussion of, uh, of what a university should be he uh-huh. talks about uh, bringing these luminaries from everywhere and that the university is this uh, place of concentrated fire
2: uh-huh. um,
1: and so Illinois was a place where I could go and listen to lectures in the history department from uh, scholars like Vernon Burton um, but also I could go to the library school and talk with uh, bibliographers and book historians like Donald Crummel and art historians and and think about how all of those things were working together even as I was you know focusing very much much on, on, on literature. Um, and I think I, I, I sort of came to African American studies uh, specifically. Through some of that work, I, I, I knew that I wanted to work in a field of literature uh, uh, that would uh, where, where those uh, you know those interests and where those abilities would, would uh, help further knowledge. Uh, and it didn't seem like uh, uh, for me that uh, writing the 500th interpretation of Moby Dick
2: would be the you know the contribution kind of
1: that I could make. Um, but but uh, uh, but you know with, with a lot of the women writers that uh, that uh, Nina was working with, um, and then especially it turned out with a lot of the African American writers. Um, you know, you know, we weren't uh, suddenly we weren't talking about what Herman Melville had for breakfast on the morning that he wrote <laughs> Chapter fifty. You know, we were talking about uh, well, when was this person born? Uh, you know, what was their parentage? Right. Uh, you know, really basic, yeah. basic right. information. Uh, and and um, I did uh, some, some early work. and It actually ended up being my my first published piece, uh, a piece for the New England Quarterly that uh, looked at Harriet Wilson's uh, eighteen fifty nine book, Our Nig and uh, tracked down extant copies. Uh, looked at them for marginal notations and especially ownership markings, records of provenance, trying to trace who the original uh, book buyers were, uh-huh. uh, to get a sense of uh, uh, um, where that book might have ended up, uh, uh, what the audience might have been, um, and and that you know again uh, sort of weaving together of, of uh, certainly historical work, some genealog- genealogical work, uh, um, and also thinking about literary text in terms of author and audience and uh, intent and those kinds of questions uh-huh. um, and from there uh, uh, um, you know that that i think uh, really sort of kicked kicked into gear the sense that uh, well you know it, it really was a viable possibility, and it really would make a useful contribution to uh, uh, to the dialogue. To think about, uh, um, you know, going out and finding more, uh, you know, looking for more information on authors, trying to find out uh, uh, some of the things that we were missing, uh, and really, in, in lots of ways, uh, Jenny Carter is about uh, getting a body of texts that uh, maybe. 10 of us had read yeah. um, out to you know a, a much broader range of people.
0: Well, I think you make a very good point about the tension in all of the humanities and perhaps the social sciences, if history is a social science, I don't know, um, between uh, the pull of the established and wanting to interpret it and the um, kind of urge to find the new. And I know that historians feel this all the time, because on the one hand, we uh, read about the same people. Um, I I guess in the case of, uh, to use a 19th century American analogy, uh, it's always another book about Lincoln. We know so much about, we know more about Lincoln than Lincoln knew about Lincoln. I mean, there, there are so many books published on Lincoln every year that uh, it, cert- it, it it boggles the mind. <laughs> N- none of them really uncover anything new. They just reinterpret something that was discovered probably in the late 19th or early 20th century about Lincoln. Sure. No new caches of letters, so on and so forth. But then on the other hand, you know there are all these books, and they tend to be uh, not widely read uh, because they don't have a lot of name recognition. That is, the people about which they write don't have a lot of name recognition. And, and uh, you know, I, th- I think people don't understand the contribution that is made when you uncover somebody who at the moment might not seem to be very important, but in fact was at the time in which they were writing or acting. And I think that's the case with Jenny Carter. That's why I found it so impressive, is that you know, unlike many people in English, uh, you have uh, uncovered something that was heretofore unknown. And that's, that's a huge contribution. You, you should be congratulated for it. I mean, it is so often the case that you're, you're absolutely right. It's a funny analogy, um, you know, that you do try to figure out what Melville was having for breakfast before he wrote the fourth chapter of Moby Dick. Not that anybody really reads Moby Dick very often, anyway. But yeah, <laughs> Oh no,
1: actually,
0: it's wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure. I still don't
1: think that. I have a running joke with. I have a running joke with one of my colleagues. We'll start off emails with, uh, you know, scrambled eggs and toast, um, because yeah, right. you know, uh, that must be what Melville had for breakfast. That day. Right. But but uh, uh, um, you know, and I, you know, I, I certainly think that that there's you know. Uh, um, Gosh, a, a lot more out there than than we might be led to believe. I oh, know, I'm sure is, of that. Yeah, you know, this is certainly true. I think in <clears throat> in 19th century uh, African American literary study, because of the, the the structure of you know the academic institution as a uh, as a social structure. Uh, you know, just kick those texts out for ages. Yeah, um, and and you know, libraries didn't collect them. And uh, of course, with with somebody like Carter, we're talking about publications mainly in the black press. Yeah. what do you do with a newspaper when you're done with it? Um, you know, <laughs> you know so it's funny. So, you you so...
0: mentioned you mentioned the library school at, at Champaign Urbana, and that, that's a very mm-hmm, famous mm-hmm. one, obviously. But I was going to say, you know, if you just look through, and I, and I've done this before and been kind of amazed. If you just look through the, uh, they don't have the card catalog anymore. But when they had it, if you just file through the card catalog of one of these great you know, libraries that were started in the 19th century, great university libraries, one of these big land grant universities, you find things in your field that you never heard of.
2: You Note know, right. that just right. nobody
0: has looked at for a hundred years. <laughs> and each one of them is, could be a gold mine. You just don't know. But some careful yeah. bibliographer in the 19th century said, This is worth having. And we're going to yeah. get, you know, it's a print run of 200, and we're going to get one of the copies. All the other ones are gone, and there it is. But because mm-hmm. we're so busy with Melville, nobody ever pays any attention to those things. And I it is, you know, yeah. and the pro- it is kind of difficult. You know, if, if, you're, if your object is to get a, an academic job, which is no easy trick, um, then studying very obscure people probably isn't the best way to go.
1: So that, that's an additional
0: part of the tension that we were talking about before. So absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So it really is. It really is a you know, it, it really is a it's a it's a difficult thing to negotiate whether you should go and find out something new, mine some archive that's never been looked at before, work on an author who's incredibly obscure by our lights, or go for the, you know, Foucault on Melville or what
1: it would be. You know, what I mean,
0: there's a lot of that going around. At least there was sure, when I was in sure, graduate sure. school. Foucault sure. on Lincoln.
1: Well, you know and 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 when i did uh um you know way back when i did the dissertation it was uh uh it was uh, it was centered around Harriet Beecher Stowe, yep. um, and and you know brought in Frederick Douglass, and so here you've got uh, uh, probably the most important white abolitionist novelist Stowe, yep. um, you know writing Little Tom's Cabin and writing then uh, a variety of other texts that are anti-slavery, and you've got Frederick Douglass, probably the most prominent black abolitionist of the period, and certainly one of the most important to uh, to African American letters, letters, and and, and yep. so uh, you know I wanted to shoot for those you know those 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 major figures in the dissertation, and it was it was fun and it was uh uh you know i i think it uh, was worthwhile for me to to, to learn through but um uh, in the end it was not that was not the kind of contribution that i thought that I, that, I, that I should be making
0: right I mean in, um, the, in the publishing trade we call that a good commercial hook <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah 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 and you know somewhere along the line it uh, uh, you know I think it, I think it must have worked in in, in uh, some regard, I was lucky enough to to get a tenure track job yeah. and, and you know to have that at, at, a, at a place that uh, I've really really grown to love in lots of ways uh, but but uh, but it was you know it, it, it wasn't it, is it's uh, you know a teaching centered job and and a so uh-huh. heavy teaching load and uh, now some fair amount of administrative responsibilities. I threw those you know, threw myself into those things with, uh, with a passion, and just sort of assumed that, uh, you know, I'd continue this digging on the, uh, you know, on the side, and uh, just, just sort of for fun, uh, and then oh gosh I probably probably about six years ago a couple of things happened uh one was that uh you know as posts would come up on listservs or as i would be in conversation with folks at conferences uh a topic would come up and i would say oh you know i got a couple of things in my files about about that let me right. you know let me send you some of my notes and 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 you could you know you can use them and some of those folks would come back and say you know you ought to get this out you ought to share this more formally yeah um and uh, uh second thing that, that that happened uh uh you know, totally unrelated to uh, the academy, but uh, uh, also deeply related to the academy. Uh, we, we, uh, our, our, our twin girls were born. Uh,
2: oh, terrific! Uh, um,
1: and, uh, and when you have, uh, when you have. Any baby, but uh, especially two, Um, you suddenly become a lot more efficient
2: and you get a lot less sleep. Uh, Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, you know, so between those two things. um, And also, there has been within African American studies over the past decade a, a, a real concentrated attention to going back into all sorts of archives and, and and thinking about establishing some of those kinds of sources that have been around for years in other fields um, but that are lacking. And so I, you know, probably one of the most exciting uh, uh, events, I think, easily in the decade, maybe in the century, is the publication of the African-American National Biography because, you know, suddenly we have thousands of biographical entries yeah. on folks that uh, aren't mentioned anyplace else at all.
0: No, those, um, are, those are absolutely terrific resources, and the people that put them together are kind of unsung heroes. I mean, yeah. they go along with reference librarians uh, in yeah. my book as, you know, they really do the fundamental research in the humanities. These are the people that put it together. And then yeah. everything that we do is built on what they do. I, I, right. I, com- I completely agree with that, that, that these are remarkable resources, and they really are the bedrocks of... Of humanity scholarship. Without these things, we could not work.
2: So and kudos to those know,
1: people. And yeah, yeah, and I mean because it because it does allow then so much other work to take place.
2: Yeah, no, uh, that's
1: because right. because suddenly you don't have. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you've uh, uh, followed the. The, the, the drama, it's been, been a little more than a year ago, about uh, Emma Dunham Kelly Hawkins, who was uh, widely known, as, uh, within especially within uh, literary study, as being one of the earliest African-American uh, women novelists. She published a couple of novels in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, before uh, some recent discoveries, there were some that actually argued that she was the first Woman, African American novelist, because uh, her novel, uh, well, her first novel came out in 1891, which is the year before *Iolani leroy uh, Frances Harper's novel that came out in 92, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, even after she was displaced, it was recognized that she was uh, a, a key early uh, Black woman novelist, and and her work was always really difficult for folks to to, to think about because there were no Black characters, no Black subjects at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were you know all these are uh, you know very white, in quotes, stories. Fascinating. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, there was also n- no real biographical material on her, and folks had been stumped for ages. She had been uh, listed in uh, just about all of the prominent bibliographies starting in the nineteen fifties of African American led, and uh, uh, was you know her books were included. Uh, uh, Oxford did uh, a forty volume set of uh, Black women's nineteenth century writing in in, mm-hmm. in the late eighties, and they were included there, mm-hmm. um, and. We come to find out through the work of uh, uh, a couple of scholars, including a very skilled genealogist, that uh, Emma Dunham Kelly Hawkins is not black, she's white.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, her inclusion in this you know, biography, uh, bibliography in the 1950s is erroneous, and it's one of those sort of crucial errors that starts off, you know, that cascades um, and leads to everybody making those kinds of assumptions.
2: What a remarkable um, story
1: you know and and so you know, so what do you do now that you know i' based i 've based my reading of nineteenth century African american right. literature on this you know on this uh, uh, on this, this you know this pair of texts uh right. by a woman who you know, never, you know, never even uh, uh, claimed, uh, uh, you know, claimed that race, um, and and certainly, uh, you know, for six generations of her family wasn't of that of that race.
0: I don't I don't um, mean to digress, but could you explain to uh, uh, to me especially, but also our listeners, exactly how this mistake came to be made if she never claimed to be black?
1: I wish I could tell you for certain. <laughs> Go um, ahead. Guess. I, I mean, I can I, can, I can. I And I can't. I can't explain the original mistake. Uh-huh. Um, but because uh, the bibliographer who includes the work, um, Evelyn whiteman uh, uh, who does some bibliographies of African American literature in the 1950s, is is uh, actually very good and is one of those uh, um, wonderful archivists who. Saved things that otherwise would have been thrown out, yeah. and so some of the you know base bibliographic scholarship that folks work from, you know, we wouldn't be able to do things right. had he not done that. But but for some baffling reason, he included uh, uh, um, Emma Dunn Kelly Hawkins books there, huh. uh, and so that bibliography then is cited by just about everybody subsequent to that. Right. Um, and then the other sort of interesting wrinkle is that one of the books has a frontispiece portrait of Kelly Hawkins. And um, it's uh, one of those, you know, uh, black and white photographs of the 1890s where the lighting and tinting is always kind of funny, uh-huh. and she's uh, she looks a little dark, uh-huh. uh, and so folks... Began then to read that visual image as, oh, okay, she's a light-skinned black woman.
2: That is uh, amazing. And of
1: course, of course, she's in, you know, she's in uh, Whitman's bi- bibliography and she's in all of these other bibliographies. So that must be the way that we have to read the photograph. And uh, so between those two pieces, uh, uh, I think folks then you know, just sort of built on those assumptions. Again, you know, the, how essential it is to, uh, uh, you know, to have that, that base scholarship That's before we do the other
0: stuff. I, I confess I wear my ignorance on my sleeve, so um, I had not heard about this at all. Has this been covered in the press in any way?
1: Has anyone written it, it a popular has, article about this? A, it has a bit there. Uh, uh, it uh, it uh, was in the Boston Globe. It made it to uh, NPR
2: um, uh, and a couple okay. of places
1: like that. But, yeah. uh, 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 p- but, but you know, there, there are still, uh, you know, for example, websites that my students, uh, you know, will bring in that sure. you know, that's the list her as uh, you know, here's this African American author. Right. Well so, that's amazing. so yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Story. No, yeah. I see
0: just what you mean. No, I actually wrote early in my career a bibliography a book-length <laughs> bibliography of incredibly obscure accounts of Russia in the 16th mm-hmm. and 17th century. And I can tell you with great assurance that it is full of errors. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah <laughs> this yeah. is a warning to anybody that uses it. Well, I know we're all I think. Yeah, It's yeah, full of mistakes. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just didn't know. I mean, you know, because I was relying on other people. It kind of indicates the amount of trust that you have to put in your sources, because I was just trusting these sources and saying, well, if it was written by this person, you know, then it's probably correct. So I'll put it in my bibliography, and I simply copy it. And you can see how errors get passed on in that way Mm -hmm. through that device Mm -hmm. of trust. Yeah, that's quite a remarkable story.
1: Well, anyway, go go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I also think that uh, I think it talks a little bit about uh, you know maybe about how we talk about scholarship because uh, you know I, I tell that story to my students and uh, um, their immediate response is uh, you know gasp did you write something assuming that she was uh, you know African American did you know what happens to a critic that uh, that right. made that assumption right. um, and and uh, you know their their first response is uh, you know oh I'd be so embarrassed I'd be uh, you know so ashamed right. um, but but uh, I think the neat thing that that, that that they then begin to recognize is that. Working on mistakes, moving knowledge forward, is what scholarship ought to be doing.
2: Right, uh, right,
1: and yeah. and so we don't want to take you know we don't want to take any of those kinds of things as gospel. We want to you know trace them back and, and, and examine them closely, um, recognizing that they're a step in this ongoing dialogue. Um, so I you know I think if we learn anything from you know that fascinating <laughs> story I've ever done in Kelly Hawkins, it's that you know don't don't assume, um, you know build from the dialogue and and recognize that you're going to make those mistakes along the line, and that that helps the scholarly dialogue. Hopefully.
0: So. Um, uh, I'm reminded of the words of uh, Ronald Reagan, who was not a great literary scholar or historian, but did come up with a very pithy phrase in this regard, trust, but verify. That's what hey, he was yeah. all about, yeah. trust, but verify. <laughs> yeah, no, Ronald Reagan, yes, great man there. Um, well, let's turn uh, to Jenny Carter then. Um, can you set the scene a little bit uh, for Jenny Carter? In other words, well, I guess what I'd like you to do first of all is how do you encounter Jenny Carter? where did you well, find the, her? Yeah,
1: yeah. The, the, I mean, the first thing to say is that I I didn't encounter Jenny Carter. I I, uh, I, I read some columns by uh, 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 a pen named Semper Fidelis in the elevator, which is a newspaper that was published in black newspaper in San Francisco that was published uh, uh, beginning right after the Civil War and running into the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd always sort of been you know interested in the the, the, the columns of Semper Fidelis because they're they're lively and engaged and uh, uh you know uh, uh, they've got a little bit of fast to them um and they certainly uh, speak directly to covering African Americans in a really unexpected place san francisco in, in the reconstruction um and there are <clears throat> a couple of other folks who have who had uh, you know read the columns and, and and used them in other sources uh Mitch Kashoon in his uh, really fine book uh, on black emancipation celebrations <clears throat> quotes a couple of uh, Emperor Fidelis's columns mm-hmm. excuse me just a huh? no problem. <clears throat> but, uh, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think I sort of just left it at that, because tracking down a pen name, uh, especially in 19th century, is, is uh, oftentimes uh, fraught with all sorts of difficulties. Yeah, that's tough one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and on another project, uh, totally unrelated, I was going through the Christian Recorder, which is the newspaper of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's uh, published out of Philadelphia, and, and it's uh, uh, it, it, be, it began uh, fairly contemporary with The Elevator, although it's actually still published today. Uh, and so I was going through issues of the Christian Recorder from the late 1860s and early 1870s on uh, a different project, and uh, just doing a page-by-page reading.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, saw a column... Signed by Semper Fidelis, that stylistically uh, was uh, uh, very, very consonant with the kinds of things that I remembered reading in the elevator, and sort of filed it away and said, oh, you know, okay, if I ever find uh, you know anything more in Semper Fidelis in addition to the elevator stuff that we know about, there's you know there's a piece in the recorder, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll go back and look at that. Um, but uh, then, as I was paging through. Uh, you know, continuing to go through the, the, the issues, uh, uh, the recorder would regularly advertise its next volume year because they wanted to try and uh, convince folks to file annual subscriptions, mm-hmm. and so they would uh, list the authors that were going to contribute and they, um, in that sort of long listing, they promised more work by Sepa Fidelis oh. and then below it that Mrs. D. D. Carter of Nevada City, California. Oh. Uh, and so I fell out of my chair just about, um, you know, because oh, okay. Um, and then, the, you know, then the question became, okay, so who's Mrs. D.D. Carter? Is she the same semper fidelis uh, writing for the recorder as is writing, you know, writing for the uh, elevator? Uh, can we go beyond the stylistic similarities and, you know, get some uh, some hardcore verifiable biographical information from enough source, enough different kinds of sources, so that we know. Right. Um And right. and. Uh, so that, you know, that set off that, that uh, you know, the large-scale digging for, uh, uh, you know, finding the identity of Mrs. Dee Carter, making sure that she was indeed the contributor not only to the recorder but also to the elevator, and then trying to find more about her. Um, but I think in some ways it's, it's really sort of, uh, you know, it's a fitting testament to, to, to her work that, uh, that, that reading her columns when I didn't have a clue of who she was, those columns still stuck in my head, huh. um, and and you know the name was there, um, and so it was you know a sort of combination of uh, uh, just incredibly dumb luck, uh, good dumb luck, um, but also that that you know her work had been had made a strong enough impression on me mm-hmm. to to sit in my mind and and allow me to <clears throat> to make that kind of connection.
0: That's, so, a, terri- that's a that's that's absolutely a terrific story. I mean that kind of discovery really makes the kind of hairs on the back of my neck stand up because I've had a couple of moments like that in my own research career, but just a couple. But when they happen and you see it, you do just about fall out of your chair. You just yeah, can't believe yeah. your good luck, because that's really what it is. I mean, for all that we work very hard, and we do work very hard, um, those moments are few and far between and largely the result of chance. But when they happen, they really make it all worthwhile to use a kind of shopworn cliche. So then tell us about Jenny Carter. What were you able to find out about her? Can you give us uh, her biography? Or as much of it as possible uh,
1: i can I give you a piece okay. um, uh, but but again it 's you know uh, so emblematic of nineteenth uh, century Amer- African American literary study that there are some some big gaps there um, uh, as far as we can tell she 's born in about eighteen hundred and thirty uh, Give or take a year uh, i don 't know a birthplace yet. Um, possibilities include uh, uh, everything from new york state to uh, to New Orleans. and the first uh, thirty plus years of her life are are really still uh, um still very much uh, 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 a significant mystery uh, uh she talks a little bit about them in her columns um she talks about being in a range of different places uh New York New Orleans uh some time in Illinois some time in Kentucky um
0: And you were able to find her you were able to find her in censuses in both New York and in um probably
1: somebody was, by that name Yeah you know, no, no, nothing. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, nothing, nothing good yet. Okay. Um, she, she, and so, you know, again, the, the, you know, the sense that uh, uh, before I wanted to make those assertions, I wanted to be able to verify them huh, in a range yeah. of different sources, not just, you know, not just sure. Combs, Because, you know, she's writing under a pen name, and occasionally she will create a persona that surrounds <clears throat> that pen name. And okay. in, in addition to Semper Fidelis, she wrote under Mrs. Joan Trask and J. Trask, Mrs. Trask, a variety of different... Uh, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes those those uh, pen names become sort of characters, and so you want to make sure that she's not just telling a fictional story or a slightly fictional story. Sure. Um... And, and so she talks about, you know, being in those places, and she also talks about uh, uh, being a schoolteacher, uh, talks about uh, uh, her reading and her a little bit about her early education, not too specific, mm-hmm. um, but not a great deal. She doesn't come into focus until uh, late 1866 when she marries uh, Dennis Drummond Carter. Uh, and um, uh, Drummond Carter is a, a fascinating guy in his own right. He... Uh, um, grew up in a uh, uh, free African American in Philadelphia although uh, his uh, mother and he had uh, immigrated from the south uh, 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 when he was a child
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, he became a quite a noted musician and he toured with uh, Frank Johnson's band Frank Johnson was uh, this wonderful African American band leader in uh, in Philadelphia in the uh, uh, 1830s um nationally known and and, and uh, uh, you know quite quite remarkable uh, but uh, Dennis Carter like more than a thousand of his fellows, um, three African-Americans of the North, uh, uh, did what uh, lots of other uh, folks in the States did in the late 40s and early 50s when uh, uh, gold is discovered in California. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, well, maybe. Uh, and so uh, Carter goes uh, goes west and uh, works as a miner for a while. By the time he marries Jenny Carter, he's back to uh, working as a musician and teaching music because, mm-hmm. of course, uh, 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 the service industries and communities grow once there are a critical mass of people in sure. California.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Um, But uh, um, they marry in in late 1866, and uh, it's only a year after that uh, uh, a woman calling herself Ann J. Trask sends a letter to the San Francisco elevator uh, and you know explains to the uh, uh, the editor Philip Bell who's another fascinating mm-hmm. story um, explains to, to Bell that uh, uh, you know now that the paper is uh, circulating among African Americans in the you know in the in the state uh, that there should be some regular feature for children and she suggests that she would send him a weekly uh, uh, of uh, uh, short fiction or prose, or uh, you know, maybe even poems uh, that were specifically designed for children,
2: mm-hmm. uh, and
1: begins and her initial her couple, first couple of pieces in early uh, in uh, 1867 um, are very much uh, uh, um, stories that are designed for children, mm-hmm. and she writes uh, one about mistakes, actually titled "Mistakes." Uh, and at the end of it, she sort of steps back and says, uh, "Oh well, you know, I see that I've made a mistake myself. It's, a, it's a num- you know another of the un- uncountable ones. Um, I started off writing for children, and I've ended up writing for everyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's that's really the sort of moment where she begins to broaden the focus of her columns. And so over the next." Uh, seven years or so, Um, and I say that because uh, 1874 is a moment when the elevator, uh, the extant copies of the elevator, just aren't there.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: I know she was writing after 1874, but I haven't been able to find any of those pieces. Mm. Um, But uh, up to 1874, between 67 and 74, she writes uh, over 70 pieces. Mm But this black newspaper in San Francisco mm-hmm. and they range incredibly widely in terms of topics there are you know certainly uh, some more stories for children and, and, and you know things that are didactic designed to give a moral lesson but there is also commentary on California politics on the ways in which uh, reconstruction is uh, taking shape on uh, black male suffrage on the possibility of women's suffrage she writes about temperance mm-hmm. she writes about uh, higher education uh, you know just a full range mm-hmm. of issues And um, in this period, the the late 60s, is when she uh, sends one of her pieces to the Christian recorder, Mm -hmm. um, and then they um, unmask her. And uh, Mm. uh, she only publishes one of the pieces in the recorder. uh, um, And my gut is that uh, they had that piece before they ran her name, and that she chose not to send them anything else. Uh, But, uh, you know, after that, the, the secret is sort of out. And so in the early 1870s, and especially seventy three and seventy four, uh, you'll see the elevator occasionally referred to Semper Fidelis as Mrs. D.D. Carter. Um uh-huh. and, and so the you know the the elevator is then at that point sort of willing to uh admit her identity. Um but the I guess the set of fascinating things are are that um I, uh, the first is that uh, she's actually not living in San Francisco all of this time. Dennis Carter settles in a small town named Nevada City, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is uh, now maybe 45 minutes drive from uh, from Sacramento,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and it's a relatively small black community, but it has ties to the larger communities in Sacramento and especially San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so, through Carter, we're not only getting a, a sense of, of, of black California, but we're getting this uh, uh, you know again a voice that, that, that we really don't often hear this this small in california relatively Mm -hmm. small black community um and it also becomes clear that uh, folks in, in the town and in the area eventually know who she is mm-hmm. because of course the elevator is uh, um, not just a san francisco paper for african-americans it really becomes and tries to be uh, an african-american paper for the west and mm-hmm. so it has correspondence in british columbia it has correspondence in idaho correspondence in new mexico, new mexico um... correspondence mm-hmm. in nevada you know really a, a wide range of black news in the west um... and those folks then are all reading jenny carter and 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 she's reading the kinds of things that are going on there
0: yeah i think i think i think it's important to say sorry to interrupt i think it's important to say if i understand correctly that this elevator is not a device that is designed to take people up to the top of tall buildings well, yeah, <laughs> <that this laughs> is, is, is this this means to elevate the race? As I'm, it
1: it, it does, but it, but I think it uh, uh, I think even there you have to uh, uh, suggest that race has uh, has two meanings. Certainly, it talks about elevating the African American race. Yeah, um, and and uh, you know the paper very much focuses on that specific community. Uh-huh. But uh, again and again, uh, uh, Bell or Carter or some, you know some of the other writers uh, will remind folks that we're also talking about elevating the human race. I see. Um, okay. That uh, you know, the white folks ought to be reading this and right. ought to be recognizing the things yeah, that, no. that we're doing right and, and do them too. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah uh, I, I mean, it's also I think a play on the current technology because that's uh, something that is just coming to the public notice. Yep. Uh, uh, Otis's elevator, uh, you know, has uh, you know made its splash, and the first uh, the first elevator is installed in San Francisco about at that time. Oh, is that right?
0: So, yeah, that's interesting. So, so yeah. So there's a I was going to say, could you tell us a little bit about the black press in general? Because I think one of the things that people have forgotten, and I know that I I don't really have a very great awareness of it, is that, in fact, at at this time, and and for many decades thereafter, there was an entire black press establishment. And every major city had a black paper, or many black papers in some cases.
1: Yeah, sometimes more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, uh, the antebellum period, we see a a number of startup efforts that last for a year, two years, really beginning with uh, Freedom's Journal, which is a New York City paper published in 1827 and 1828. Uh, But, you know, and there are are sort of sporadic black papers in the pre-Civil War period. um, But oftentimes they are... Fought with economic difficulties, but also they have trouble getting readership because there are better-funded white papers right. that have the abolitionist viewpoint and do cover the black, you know, black communities like like uh, Garrison's, New uh, William Lloyd Garrison's Boston paper, the Liberator, yeah, the Liberator, which is really a national paper, mm-hmm. uh, but. After the Civil War, things changed significantly because in addition to uh, the sense that uh, uh, the black polity may be actually invested with some rights of citizenship, you also have uh, a number of entities uh, thinking about, okay, well, what do we do with this massive new freed population? Uh, Because we have to uh, think about getting them basic literacy skills, but we also have to think about getting them a public voice. Mm -hmm. And so you see um, papers like the... Uh... African Methodist Episcopal Church's Christian Recorder really become not just a church organ, but a national paper trying to uh, uh, um, you know, spread church values. Mm-hmm. And so you see recorder writers among the teachers that go out uh, uh, and teach for the Freedmen's Bureau, which uh-huh. is a you know, sort of massive government uh, uh, effort to, uh, you know, to think about what to do with the, the newly freed folks. Um, and you see the recorder being used as, uh, uh, as a literacy text, right? Let's learn mm-hmm. to read, and we'll learn to read using the recorder. You also see lots of black papers spring up uh, across the Reconstruction South as uh, uh, African Americans gain that sort of uh, uh, you know, public presence and become involved in legislative affairs, mm-hmm. and especially in some of the larger uh, urban communities in the North. You see again the sense of of, of you know a community coalescing and, and needing that kind of voice, and so there are a, a large large number of papers in the second half of the 19th century uh, that are black owned, mm-hmm. black run, largely written by black folks, and largely designed to be read specifically by black folks. And yep. the elevator, uh, you know, sits in sits in that group. It's actually it's uh, connected to another black paper in San Francisco, the Pacific Appeal, for a little while, and then separates off. But uh, uh, the root of those. Was uh, a statewide convention of African American leaders that said we need a newspaper, huh. we need some way to uh, uh, cover the community and to share news and to uh, yeah. you know publicly debate questions. Yeah. And uh, uh, in in that, the elevators uh, a lot like. Uh, you know, much, much later papers like the Indianapolis Freeman or uh, mm-hmm. like the Chicago Defender in the 20th century. Uh, uh, but, but it's a real rich range of, of, uh, of discussion of, of the community by the community. Uh, and it's also something, unfortunately, that uh, um, until very recently has been widely ignored.
0: Yeah, I think it has, uh, actually. The, it, yeah. It's interesting because I was listening to, a, of all things, I was listening to a story about coverage of the Iraq War and they interviewed a guy who writes for and I don't know what the name of the paper is but he writes for a black paper in Philadelphia and I thought to myself a black paper in Philadelphia there're still black papers who knew about yeah. this you know yeah. i mean i knew yeah. i kind yeah. of vaguely knew that there used to be them but i just was i just somehow forgotten it but this this was kind of a huge establishment at the time i mean there was every reasonably sized black community had one or as i say more so how big how big was the uh, african american community in san francisco at the time
1: it's a little tough to say because racial classification gets uh, uh a little sticky um especially when light-skinned folks go to a place thousands of miles from where anybody knows them. Sure. Um so um but but uh um in terms of uh, you know, we're, we're never talking uh, uh, above the low thousands, mm-hmm. one or two thousand, yeah. um, and the elevator circulation uh, in terms of paid subscribers never passes eight hundred. Uh-huh. Uh, but again, uh, that 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 in some ways is is you know much much more significant than, than you would expect because uh, uh, when you have uh, one person with a newspaper, uh, how many people share that newspaper? Yeah, sure. How many people does she read it to? Sure. Uh, you know those those kinds of things. So so the census and and. The, the funny thing, I, I guess one of the funny things, I, something that I didn't know, um, is that, that I had always followed the sort of set assumption uh, that you can see in, in uh, um, a great deal, uh, you know, a great deal of the history that's been written is this emphasis on uh, free African-Americans uh, clustering around urban centers mm-hmm. um, in the north. Uh, um, and that's not really the case actually anywhere but it's not the case in California there are uh, you know lots of these small little communities like the one in Nevada City yeah. uh, like one in the neighboring Grass Valley and and so they view this San Francisco community, which, you know, if you say it's a thousand people, that that still sounds fairly small, but that becomes this sort of hub of all of these African-Americans and smaller, smaller communities, uh, uh, you know, around the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have deep connections with uh, uh, communities in Los Angeles and San Jose, you know, connections with uh, communities in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amazing thing about the black press that, again, I don't think lots of folks uh, uh, know about or have really studied is that they're... They're participating in that 19th century trend of uh, um, regular 19th century practice of newspaper exchange. And so they'll send free copies of The Elevator out to any newspaper that will send them back. Huh. Uh, and, and Bell, who's, this, uh, who's a long-established journalist uh, uh, within the black community, uh, um, understands this process. And so is sending out The Elevator to the Christian Recorder and the Cincinnati Colored Citizen and getting uh-huh. copies of these papers back. They're publishing excerpts. Um, and so you can read the Christian recorder and see little items that have been clipped out of the elevator and uh-huh. vice versa. Um, but also then those newspapers are sitting around Bell's office, uh-huh. and his writers are reading them. And so there really becomes the sense that the black press might be might be a vehicle for fostering a broader national dialogue uh-huh. between African Americans who are really scattered all over
0: uh-huh. the nation. Uh-huh. I see.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about
0: Philip Bell, then, who hired Jenny Carter eventually? I yeah. don't know if hired yeah. is the right um Verb for that, but um, <laughs> took her work.
1: Yeah, I, was she was yeah, ever paid? Yeah.
0: Was she was she ever paid for any of
1: this? I don't. You know, I I, I don't think so um, because Bell was always running on a shoestring. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, sometimes had uh, trouble making rent.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I was I was.
1: Like I, did So
0: a, a newspaper editor once told me that the best way to run a newspaper is not pay the writers. That's
1: right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The surest Follow, road followed by not paying the rent. Yeah, yeah surest yeah, road yeah, to profitability.
0: Yeah. Don't pay the writers. That's,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah tell yeah. us a little
0: about Philip Bell. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, Bell actually uh, uh, is a New Yorker by, by birth and uh, becomes, and he's a free African-American, becomes active in the black press incredibly early. He works with uh, a paper published out of New York City called The Colored American um, in the 1830s, uh, which is really, uh, I mean, that's, you know, again, in that sort of pre bellum period where there just aren't a lot of black newspapers. And so The Colored American really is, is, is a landmark in lots of different ways. Um, and at that point, he's networking with a number of leaders in the broader African-American community, so he's networking with uh, Charles Ray, who's active uh, 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 in a variety of different venues. Uh, um, He knows Frederick Douglass, uh, he knows uh, William Wells Brown, a range of these folks. And uh, even after the Colored American uh, folds, he continues to write for some of the other Sort of freestanding black papers. Uh, he writes occasionally for the White Liberator, um, but he also publishes things in the Christian Recorder and in Frederick Douglass's various newspapers. Uh, and he runs uh, he runs an information office. That's actually what 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 what, what they call it uh, um, in in New York City. And, and the information office is a sort of combination news service, job placement service. So folks who wanted uh, uh, you know ten waiters uh, for a for a you know a party would uh, call Bell, and he would you know go out into the community and- you know, recruit ten good waiters, and, uh-huh. and uh, um, but also it, it sounds like because he was so then connected with uh, so much of the community that uh, those information offices became became sites of uh, of black resistance, okay. uh, aiding fugitive slaves, okay. uh, uh, doing doing a range of different kinds of things, um, and he's sort of recruited. To go west and help with the Pacific Appeal when it's uh, uh, being built uh, in the middle of the Civil War, uh, and he works with the Appeal for a while. Has a major falling out with the editor there, and uh, in 1865 starts up his own his own venture, the Elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the next two and a half decades. Uh, Philip Bell really is the elevator. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he makes sure that funds come in. He uh, uh, he harasses uh, leaders of the community or encourages them or you know entices <laughs> them all sorts of things to you know to make sure that he can uh, you know get money to get this out there. Um, and he uh, sets up a network of uh, subscription agents across the Black West, um, uh, uh, even in uh, um, uh, uh, even uh, uh, in the, the the sort of so far west that it's uh, that it's far east because uh, he has connections with black expatriate communities in Japan and China, and so uh-huh. uh, um, so he's got wow. subscription he's got a subscription agent in Japan for a while, um, but he's he's, uh, he's all about. Getting the elevator out there, um, and uh, uh, really becomes in some significant ways uh, uh, an institution. When he dies, one of uh, San Francisco white papers talks about <clears throat> that, that this is a guy. Uh, and first, I think it's notable that, that, that he's uh, eulogized in the white press um, at the time, and not you know not ignored as so many of the African American leaders. You know, were consciously ignored. Let's leave them out. Yeah. Um, San Francisco uh, white paper uh, uh, writes about him as being this man who would uh, be walking along the street in a very Dignified manner, but if he began talking with you, uh, or if you began talking with him, he would argue with you about anything, <laughs> <laughs> and never let you win. That sounds um, like a lot
0: of editors I know. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so Bell really sees himself as being, you know, this this, uh, uh, you know, that we've got to get the paper out, because the paper uh, uh, is the community, it, it it you know it is yep. the, the the multiple voices of the community. Uh-huh. Um, and so he and he and uh, uh, Carter actually have. Uh, uh, a pretty fascinating relationship. It's clear that they become friends over the years, uh, and it's possible that uh, uh, Bell actually knew Dennis Drummond Carter before Jenny Carter started sending him stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but uh, uh, um, he's also... <laughs> Pretty definite on his sense of uh, of uh, what gender should look like, mm-hmm. um, what women should do and should not do, um, and uh, uh, then ironically, uh, uh, he becomes an advocate for uh, women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jenny Carter is actually opposed to women's right? suffrage. She is because uh, um, and, and most of it comes from uh, uh, um, there's uh, a fairly significant schism that happens when uh, uh, there's a move to enfranchise African American men. Uh, because, uh, uh, of course, a number of white women suffragettes who have, suffer- suffragette activists, have been uh, you know active in the abolitionist movement all yeah. the way through and say, well, you know, why not us, too? Right. Um, uh, uh, and then, in addition to that very valid claim, some of those folks, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, hook up with uh, a guy named George Francis Train who is an incredible racist. Yeah. Um, and so some of the arguments over, you know, that they advanced during the late 60s are, you know, well, why do you want to give uh, a vote to the D- these people, um, when you're not, uh, you know, giving them to, you know, smart white women, right. and so there's a real rift. And uh, Carter identifies with. She, she identifies racially at that moment, um, and so she argues for African American men getting the vote, mm-hmm. uh, um, and then you know that we'll we'll deal with uh, Frances Harper, uh, another black activist, woman activist of the time, says uh, uh, that she'll let the she'll set the lesser question of sex aside mm-hmm. for the time, um, and and so Carter comes out and says no to, to, to women's suffrage hmm. because she is so vehemently arguing for black male suffrage uh-huh. first. Yeah. Um, but Bell disagrees with her, and so they back and forth on uh, on that in, in, in pretty lively ways.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and actually, that that too is emblematic of the black press of the period. It's not univocal. There's lots of mm-hmm. rich arguments, and you really mm-hmm. get to see people trying to figure out complex issues and disagreeing with each other and bringing in personal stuff, too. Uh, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, even though It's really clear that he and Carter disagree on a couple of these key issues. Mm -hmm. She continues to send stuff to him. He continues to publish it.
0: Mm -hmm. And was the normal modus operandi for her simply to send things over the transom and for him to publish them? He didn't make assignments to her, did he? Or do we know about that?
1: (sighs) we don 't know about it definitively, given the the character and the voice in most of the pieces um, i I would hazard to guess that most of them come from her mm-hmm. uh, but uh, for example, when she travels uh, uh, there 's uh, an extended trip that she takes to San Francisco uh, early in her writing career and then also uh, late in her writing career. Uh, she takes an extended trip to uh, Carson City and uh-huh. uh, uh, the city surrounding there and at those moments it 's very, very clear that Bell has consciously said. I want you to write about what you think of the black community here. I want you to report back. Uh-huh. I want you to see what's going on. Um, so there was that that kind of exchange.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but a lot of the pieces, and, and I think it's also probably important to point out that uh, um, the newspapers of the period in general, and black newspapers especially, um, aren't the kind of uh, – like industrial uh, uh, things that we see now, um, you know and and so you see stories and poems and personal essays and a real wide range of genres and topics
2: uh-huh. uh, um,
1: in these and so uh, you know it's, it's, uh, we sort of struggled over the the title of the book is Jenny Carter a black journalist? Well, she does do some things that we would think of in contemporary terms as a journalist that is she goes to events and she reports on them, mm-hmm. um, but she 's also a political commentator, a moral commentator,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, a good storyteller. Uh, you know, some of the pieces are fiction. She writes occasionally, sends in a poem for her weekly contribution. There mm-hmm. um, so are real, you know, a real wide range of of, of different kinds of texts, um, and and a lot of those texts that fall outside of the realm of uh, uh, you know of reporting on events. It's pretty clear. Those are the things that she's thinking about, and the Mm -hmm. things that she wants to share or wants Mm -hmm. to talk about. And so, those are very much, uh, uh, you know, self texts that are motivated by uh, by something, you know, that's that's in herself.
0: Why, Why do you think that Jenny Carter wrote? I know that's a tough question. It's not really yeah,
1: answerable, but go ahead. And, you know, this is, this is always, right, the, the biographer's struggle is, right, getting in somebody's head um, and wondering, you know, what, what was the motivation, um, especially when there's so much information about her that we don't know. Yep. Um, you know, I wish I knew her favorite color. For <laughs> uh, you know, a so, you know, little bit like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I think I think part of the yeah I know I, I think part of the answer has to be uh, um, seen in her choice of pseudonyms because when she chooses Semper Fidelis, this is before John Philip Sousa and before the Marines uh, and before that term has the kind of resonance that it might in oh. today's popular culture right um, when when uh, 19th century readers see Semper Fidelis they don't immediately think Marine Semper Fi they probably are thinking the Latin root, which is always faithful.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And her idea then uh, is is that it is a gesture of faith in the community for the community to get that voice out there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so she's, you know, writing to report things that might not otherwise be reported. Mm-hmm. She's writing about topics that she think need to be discussed, but might not otherwise mm-hmm. be discussed. So she writes, for example, one of her early pieces for children is actually about color prejudice within the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's very clear that mm. she recognizes that this isn't something that we talk about in public spheres often, That's but boy we need to, right? Um, and, and so the sense is that by getting her voice out there, she is being always faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, so I think, I think it's very much that sort of communitarian ethos that she's mm-hmm. hoping that if she gets this stuff out there, uh, that it will make some kind of change happen, that uh, uh, people will hear it and say, oh, you know, and maybe agree and maybe not, but, but will, you know, sort of push people to be involved and to think about the issue. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. I see. Uh, yeah, I, that, that's, that's convincing, I think. Semper Fidelis is, is a telling pseudonym to choose. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Now, Anne Trask, where did that come from? I, I, I looked that up in the phone book. And
1: it's quite funny because uh, uh, I've certainly, you know, have some grounds to speculate that Jenny may be short for Joan, uh-huh. um, uh, um, which is, you know, Joe Ann Trask or Joan Trask uh, uh-huh. sometimes also appears or J Trask. Um, and she also, when she uh, is writing as Mrs. Trask, she writes about Mr. Trask. And she gives Mr. Trask the first name Darby, which of course shares the first letter with her husband, Dennis Carter, yeah. And uh-huh. it's very, very clear in her okay. writing that Mr. Trask is Dennis Carter because she jokes about his musical instruments being left everywhere around the house. Uh-huh. Dennis Carter, of course, is a music teacher. Uh-huh. Um, and And uh, so it's clear that she sort of picked picked that D word to you know to, to as you know, a sort of inside joke. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, where the Trask comes from, I don't have the faintest idea yet, okay. um, and how that name came about, I, I don't know. Yet. Okay.
0: What What do you think that Jenny Carter's place will be in 19th century letters or 19th century African American letters,
1: well, or should it, it I, be? Should it be? I, I I guess I would say first that I hope it goes more broadly than that um, because I. I, I um, there are certainly a number of rich comparisons that we could make to African-American writers of the period. I think a logical you know, connection, and somebody wonderful to read next to her, are the work of Frances Helen Watkins Harper, who writes a group of serialized novels for the Christian Recorder, uh, eventually publishes a novel in book form later, writes poems, uh, cross, crisscrosses the country doing lectures on temperance and, and uh, talks about questions of suffrage. So, you know, somebody, you know, comparing her with somebody like Harper, or somebody like uh, Douglas in his older years because of course, Douglas is, is still, you know, engaged in uh, a national scheme at this time. I, you know, I think that that, that she, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, speaks in rich ways to thinking about those folks as participants in a much larger literate culture. Uh-huh. Um, but but beyond that, um, the fact that she chooses the short form and that uh, she does. So much with the short form um, makes me think that that you know we ought to also be setting her next to people like Mark Twain or uh-huh. Bret Hart, mm-hmm. who are also uh, you know writing out of this short initially out of this short sketch tradition, mm-hmm. uh, very much grounded in the West and and for both of them very specifically in California,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, or somebody like Fanny Fern, mm-hmm. uh, um, the you know noted uh, columnist in, in in the East, uh, Sarah Parton Willis, um, and and. Um, you know, so so I think putting her in dialogue with this idea of what to do with the short form, what to do with the press essay, uh, um, or you know the piece that appears in the newspaper or the magazine, uh, in broader American letters mm-hmm. would, would you know would, would be equally valuable, and that's something that we haven't talked a lot about literary study oftentimes tends to focus on the bound book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a sort of weird uh, corollary to the Academy's obsession with the monograph. Um, You know, it's got to be bound and covered. And a, a lot of... Black writing was not that way. A lot of women's writing, white and black, was, was not that way, at least first. Um, and a lot of white men's writing of the period wasn't that way either. Mm-hmm. And so getting a broader sense of, of all of this, uh, you know, this textual culture um, that, that we, you know, finally get to see on a national level with, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, everything changing from the structure of the printing press uh, to uh, distribution networks, uh, uh, you know, p- putting her there and saying, oh, well, I wonder. You know, if we set her next to Mark Twain, I wonder what
2: happens. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um,
1: so you interesting. know, so hopefully, hopefully that too, um, and and also I think uh, uh, you know beyond those pieces, I uh, you know of, of of sort of you know placing her in the moment and, and in dialogue with folks. Um, I, I hope first and foremost that folks just uh, see her as the lively voice that she is. Yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm still uh, um, you know I, I'm still stunned by uh, uh, probably my favorite of the columns is. Uh, she writes a column uh, about, uh, in, in childhood, Dennis Drummond Carter was uh, separated from uh, one of his cousins, Henry Drummond, mm-hmm. um, and Henry Drummond is uh, uh, is uh, an orphan uh, at that point. His parents have died, and uh, so he is uh, bound out. Um, and in essence, uh, uh, if you're a free African-American child and you're bound out and you don't have a fine family that's welcome, you know, well-positioned to fight for you, so he's a slave, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, she writes this uh, very, very touching column about uh, the love between Dennis and his cousin Henry uh-huh. um, and, and, and ends it with uh, the plea that, you know, if Henry Drummond is out there and reads this or if you know Henry Drummond, please write us because I know that, uh, oh. uh, um, you know, my, my husband would, would shed those same tears that he yeah. shed as a boy when, when they were separated. Wow. Um, and that's in, that's in so many ways, uh, you know, if you look at black newspapers after, uh, uh, after the Civil War, all the way up until the 1890s, uh, across the board, you'll see these information wanted ads um, mm. that you know say seeking information on Jane who was owned by Henry Smith of Accomac County, Virginia. Please send information to um, because you know if, if, think about it if, if you're uh, you know if you've just been freed, the first thing you're going to do is try and find your family yeah. if you've been separated.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: and and all of those little information wanted paragraphs that are you know one or two lines long, I, I think don't get read um, and don't get recognized for the, you know, the kind of emotional power that they pack. Exactly. And Carter exactly. says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to do an information one of that, but I'm going to tell you the whole story. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and I'm going to do it in a narrative form, and I'm going to let you know a little bit about the people that are involved in this. And And to be able to take that, you know, that kind of event that, Lots of folks have ignored, and to tell the story around it, and through telling that story, get folks to understand and get folks to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's the kind of thing that she's doing, and and so that's the you know that's what I want folks to you know folks to recognize.
0: That that is remarkable. That is such a such an interesting point you just made about these. Um Advertisements for people 's lost relatives that, that really is it 's again it 's one of these things that i I kind of knew about, but I had just forgotten yeah, I know that I know that it was the case that in the Soviet Union and also in Germany after the war, because so many people were lost, that yeah. uh, people would put placards everywhere and would stand mm-hmm. at train stations and and put one ants in papers and so on and so forth looking for their lost relatives who'd been lost during the war but it, it is a very poignant thing, and it is an extraordinarily good idea for a literary essay and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we should thank Jenny Carter for writing it, and we should thank you because we 've Taken up so much of your morning. I bet those twins want you.
1: So uh, <laughs> they're doing pretty cool. Yeah. All, it's all safe. That's the only reason why we kind of fully quiet out. Exactly. Uh, 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 but, but but thank you too. It's been a wonderful. Yeah. So why don't you um, wonder-
0: why don't you close just by telling us what you're working on right now?
1: Lots of different things. Uh, uh, um, I, I want to do, of course, more work on Jenny Carter because there's that 30 years uh-huh. uh, uh, that is that is empty um, so far, and, and uh, there's got to be something else out there. Um, but I'm also doing some broader work on the Black Press, uh, some more work on the Elevator, trying to track some other folks down, and also uh, working with a variety of other Black periodicals that, again, have have been largely ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, a piece that that uh, just came out. Um, uh, um, that, that, um, uh Talks about uh, some work uh, from uh, a periodical that was published out of Indianapolis, Indiana,
2: mm-hmm. in uh, uh,
1: the late 1850s, called the Repository of Religion of Literature. Mm-hmm. And you know, who thinks about the fact that there's this quarterly black magazine being published out of Indianapolis's black community yeah. before the Civil War? Um, and the pieces that uh, the piece that the piece that uh, just came out um, is uh, a couple of works by uh, early black activist Mariah Stewart, who uh-huh. everybody thought wasn't writing at all in the 50s and 60s, and it turns out, well, she sent this material to the this uh, black magazine in, in Indianapolis, of all places,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so you know, the, you know, trying to <clears throat> sketch out what the broader landscape of African American letters looks like, uh, tracing uh, uh, literary communities mm-hmm. in all of these different unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Um, Digging in the archive and, uh, uh, you know, trying to bring up some good stuff to share with folks.
0: Well, it sounds like you got a full plate with the twins
1: and with these Always projects fun. and everything else. Wouldn't have it wouldn't happen any other
0: way. Well, Eric, thank you very, very much for writing this book and for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Uh, all right. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Gardner, the author of Jenny Carter, a black journalist of the early West. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the host of New Books in History, and we hope to see you next week. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you.